7. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let me pray. Lord, we know that we need you this morning. We need you to uh, just work in us powerfully. We need you, Father, to send your spirit upon us that we might be um, illumined in our minds and might understand your word rightly. And Lord, that you would soften our hearts so that we would rejoice, we would receive it with joy, um, Lord, and that we would be thankful for the work that you're continually doing in us and through us because of the power of your Holy Spirit, whom is sent as a result of the work of your uh, blessed Son. And we're thankful this morning for that and pray that we would attend well to your word uh, for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, I, you guys know that different things are made for something, right? Everything that's made generally has a purpose or started. For example, uh, McDonald's, when they started, actually, they started with the purpose of making hot dogs. Do you guys know that? Really quickly, they probably should have stuck to making hot dogs. What they certainly shouldn't have done is getting into making the McRib, right? You guys had that awful thing? It's just a big barbecue piece of fat, right? They've gone outside of their purpose. McDonald's is not set up for making ribs, right? They're set up for making nasty 99-cent cheeseburgers, right? Some people seem to love, particularly my wife, but they've gone outside of their their (laughs) purpose. There are also, um, you know, you see various things that, that happen. Like I was trying to think of the purpose of duct tape. Around here, in certain parts of our community, it seems to be that duct tape is made for every purpose, right? doesn't matter. Your engine falling apart, just use some duct tape, you know, and just go down the list of things you can do with duct tape. It's got a purpose, though, and that's to fasten things down that are, that are coming apart, right? And everything has a purpose. So the question becomes, as we're going through um, these three Ds that we have as a church, delight, develop, and declare... What, what we're trying to identify is what we believe is the purpose of the church. What we believe specifically is the purpose of Sovereign Grace Church. Why do we exist as a church? What's our purpose? Well, we derive it primarily from Romans 1. So look there really quickly, if you would. Romans 1. Paul lays out who he is. He talks about his identity. And then he tells us why he has this identity, what his calling is. Why he has it, what his purpose is. And he says this, Paul, verse 1 of chapter 1, a servant of Christ Jesus. He identifies himself first and foremost as a servant of Christ. Called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. So this is what he believes God has saved him for. This is his purpose. For the gospel. And he goes down and explains what the gospel is. But then in verse 5, you look right at the end of verse 4, and then in verse 5, he says this. In verse 4, he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then verse 5 starts this way. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship. In other words, what he says is, it is through Jesus Christ that we've received grace and apostleship. And the grace and apostleship here, the way that I believe this Greek phrase is constructed, actually, is the grace of apostleship. And he's using this about himself. And he's using a we in the plural sense, but he's really talking about himself singularly. And what he's saying is, I've received the grace of apostleship. When I was saved, I became a servant of Jesus Christ, who was called to be an apostle, who was set apart for the gospel of God, and 
at that moment, at salvation, I received something else. Not only did I receive grace unto salvation, I received grace unto spiritual gifting. In other words, God set me apart at that moment. When I was saved, he set me apart and he gifted me to carry out what he called me to do. And what he called him to do, look at the rest of verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. In other words, God gifted me, Paul says, so that I might bring about the obedience of faith. In other words, I might bring men, women to obey the gospel. What does that mean? Well, the word of God clearly says, repent and believe. Right? Repent and believe. That's a command given unto men. And Paul wants people to obey that command, to believe. So he says, the obedience of the gospel, to bring about the obedience of the gospel among all nations. In other words, Paul says, I am gifted and called to proclaim the gospel of God to every nation, to every people. And I'm going to go and do it. And God has gifted me to do that. And I'm going to go and do it. And why ultimately? See, that his goal and you might say, you might call it a penultimate goal. Penultimate is just below the ultimate goal, but it relates to it. His penultimate goal is to say, I want to bring about the obedience of faith in all nations. And that goal serves the ultimate goal, which is what? For the sake of his name. That's what he's about. We actually adopted that phrase as the purpose statement for Sovereign Grace Church. We to bring about the obedience of faith in all nations for the sake of his name. That's what we believe we exist to do as a church. And we laid out how we think that happens through three D's. Delight, develop, declare. You have to begin with delighting in Christ, in God. Our delight has to turn from a delight in ourselves and what the world has to offer us to a delight in Christ, in him where he is our supreme treasure. And everything around us, all the incredible gifts that we have around us, only serve as pointers to what a great treasure he is and are not in and of themselves ends. And we have to start there. Then we said we really need to develop in our understanding of Christ. We need to develop in our maturity in Christ. That's why we have that second D. How does that happen? That happens through the renewing of our minds, which occurs in community. And so what I preached on the second D, develop in your maturity in Christ, I preached from Ephesians 4. Because I wanted us to understand that when God saved us, he didn't just save us as individuals. He saved us into a community, into a body called the church. And that the only way that any of us are going to grow into fullness or maturity in Christ is through all the members of the body using their spiritual gifts for the benefit of the whole body. That's how you grow in maturity. That's how that occurs. And then we have this third D, which is what I want to talk about this morning, which is declare. Declaring Christ to the ends of the earth. It's pretty simple, right? We have to go out and proclaim his glory. In fact, what I want to say is that the reason we culminate there is because that's the purpose of the church. In other words, God called us and set us apart. And he set us apart into a type of body that has characteristics that are given to us so that, you hear that? So that he's made famous in all the nations. That's why I did it. Ultimately, the end isn't so that you could have a good experience in life. Does that attend it? Yes. But that isn't the end of it. Ultimately, the end isn't so that your marriage is fixed or so that your family finally comes together or so that you get to go to heaven. That isn't the ultimate end of it all. All of those things are circumstances which attend Christian salvation, but they aren't the end of it all. Those things are pointers to the goal, 
the ultimate goal, which is so that he might be made known in the nations. That's why I turned you to 1 Peter chapter 2. So look there, because it's interesting to me that Peter lays out these characteristics of what the church looks like. And he gives four of them here in in verse 9, and we're going to look at verse 9 only. He gives four of them. And when he gives these four characteristics, all of them, every single one of these characteristics lead toward God's chief end that he would be known. Every single one of them lead toward that chief end. In other words, the body of Christ is described in such a way that if we would just be who we are. Did you hear that? If we would just be who we are, God's goal that he would be made famous, the nations would happen. And so that's what I want to look at first. I want to look at the four characteristics that Peter gives of the church in verse nine of chapter two. And then I want to look at what the goal of all that is. So look there with me on verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. People for his own possession. He gives these four characteristics. First one, we're a chosen race. Second one, we're a royal priesthood. Third one, we're a holy nation. And the fourth one is that we're a people for his own possession. But he starts off with this interesting word in verse 9. But you. And what is the word but? It's a contrast, right? He's contrasting with something else. But you. In contrast to someone else, right? In other words, I say, they are this way, but you are this. So look up at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. In other words, this but you is distinguishing the believers from those who do not believe, those who disobey the word as they were destined to do. It's distinguishing these two groups. Peter's saying, this group of people don't believe, and they disobey the word. And this group of people, you, this is what you're about. But you are, present tense, he's talking about what we are. Not what we will be in the future, but if we're in Christ as a body, what we are now. And every single one of these descriptors he puts in the singular, which is really interesting to me. He doesn't put them in a plural. He puts them in a singular, but he's talking about a plural group of people. Why does he do that? Because it's a collective singular. In other words, he's talking about the body. He's not focusing in on, you know, but Johnny, you're a, you know, chosen people. Johnny can't be a chosen people. He's one person. He's a part of God's chosen people. He's a part of a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people set apart for our God. He's a part of that. But he isn't that by himself. And unfortunately, in America, we are so, just in the West in general, frankly, we are so focused on individualism. So focused on who we are in and of ourselves. That we miss the corporate nature of the body. I mean, the fact that we even have the question or even discuss the issue. Um, why should I go to church? I don't need to go to church to be saved. You guys have heard that, right? You talk to people who say, I believe in Jesus. Why do I need to go to church? The very question misses the whole point And demonstrates a major problem. First of all, you don't go to the church. You are the church. Right? The church isn't a building you show up at. The church is the people of God. And second of all, God saved you into that body. And without them, you cannot grow in your faith. Period. It's impossible. It's impossible. You cannot grow in your faith as a believer on your own. Impossible. Nor can you demonstrate to the world a legitimate apologetic or defense of the faith that people look at 
and say, you know what? Because your life is so different, I'm going to become a Christian. Doesn't really do it. You know what they look at? They look at and they see a whole body of people. And what Jesus says, how will they know you? By your love for one another. When they see a whole body of people who love one another and live differently among them, now that is a major defense of the faith. They're blown out by that. So it goes on, he says this, you are first a chosen people, a chosen people. And he takes this from Isaiah 43. And what I want you to know is that there's two characteristics here that he lists that come from Isaiah 43 and two characteristics that come from Exodus 19. So we're going to be looking at both of those places. So turn with me and keep your hand at first Peter and then turn with me to Isaiah 43. For those of you who aren't super familiar um, with the Bible, Isaiah is just about dead in the center. Okay. Almost dead in the middle of your Bible. It depends on how many notes you have um, in them, but somewhere right around there, after, closer to the New Testament, after Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah 43, in verse 20, he says this of Israel. Now listen, this first time these terms are used, are used of Israel. He's talking about Israel. And then they're used for the church in First Peter 2. In Isaiah 43, 20, says this, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. Here he says that? My chosen people. So what is that word chosen people? Because Peter picks that up and says the same thing. You're a chosen race. That word race is the word for people. You're a chosen race or a chosen people. What does he mean by that? Well, if we understand that in the Old Testament originally, the people of God are the people who belong to the family of Abraham, right? They come from his family. Physically. They come from his family. But all along, one of the things we find out later is that ultimately the only people who are really the children of Abraham are the people who believe in the promise given to Abraham. So Abraham is this Jewish man. He was actually a Gentile. He became the first Jew. But he's walking through life, and God comes to him and makes him a promise. He says, all your offspring will be blessed, essentially. You'll have multiple offspring. I'll give you a nation. I'll give you laws. I'll do all of this thing for you, all these things for you. And through your seed, ultimately, will, be co- will come the Messiah. And he made this promise. And everybody who believed that promise down from there was a part of this chosen people that had been set apart. But Israel failed, didn't they? Again and again and again. And then Jesus came along. And Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, I'm the true vine. Well, what did God refer to Israel as in the Old Testament? The vine. And Jesus says, I'm the true vine. He comes and says, I'm the true son of God. What was Israel referred to in the Old Testament? The sons of God. In other words, what Jesus is coming and saying, and I could go through multiple different places where he talks about this, but I won't. What he's coming and saying is, I am the people of God. What the people of God failed to do, I've succeeded in doing. I've kept God's law perfectly. I've been faithful to him to the end. I've rejoiced in him in all things. And the people of God failed to do that. And then what he comes and says, it's really interesting to the churches. Now you're the people of God, but you're the people of God in Christ. In other words, when you believe you were then united to him, you are part of his body. And therefore part of the people of God, you're a chosen people chosen in Christ, not in and of yourselves. God didn't look down the quarters of time and say, you know, I think Dwayne is a great guy. I'm going to choose him. It's not what he did. God chose him in Christ.
Christ. In other words, God looked down the corridors of time and said what? Jesus is my faithful son. And all who believe in him will be in him and they're chosen in him. We're chosen in him. And as those in Christ, God is our father. And our spiritual rebirth, that being born again when we come to know him and we have that conversion experience, we now know him. Our spiritual rebirth means that our spiritual heritage is through God and we find our identity in Christ. Not through our physical genealogy. That's why we can say that we're brothers and sisters with those who believe in the church. And I'm going to tell you something that the Bible's clear about this body, the church, and I don't mean just this local expression of the church, but those who believe in Christ around the world take precedence over every other family connection you have. Period. For it's Christ's body, and he takes precedence over everyone makes us a peculiar people it sets us apart and gives us a unity that if properly lived out is an incredible testimony to the world about jesus that's why jesus says they'll know they'll know your mind by your love for one another if we're going to be a race or a people within various races or peoples we have to be countercultural in this regard here, here, here's what this looks like. Think about this. We live in the city of Bakersfield, right? Most of you, some of you have the privilege of living somewhere else, but the rest of us live in the city of Bakersfield. And um, there's a guy named Tim Keller who talks about it this way. I appreciate. He's in New York City. And he says what the church is supposed to be is a city within the city. In other words, we're a community within a larger community or a people within a people. And as such, we look different than the rest of the city. And we serve them in a way that absolutely causes them to say, this community of people is different than us. And it's good. It's good. They've got all sorts of things going on that we don't even understand. They have a completely different ethic they live by. They have a commitment to each other we've never seen before. They love one another and have a sacrificial love for one another. They bear each other's burdens. That doesn't happen in the regular city, does it? They're... Loving people regardless of the ethnicity they're a part of. They're not segregating themselves out. They're intermingling rich and poor. They don't care about social class. You know that society cares about social class, don't they? Church isn't supposed to. They don't care about political party distinctions. They love each other regardless of what side of the aisle they're from. Makes us different. What matters in this community is that we are God's people in Christ and that we love one another and that we give ourselves to one another. And in this, we will declare the glory of Christ. That's what it means to be a chosen people. We're set apart. We're different. And what matters as God's chosen people is one another. That's what matters. We're his chosen people. And being in Christ takes precedence over everything. It takes precedence over social class. It takes precedence over political party distinctions. It takes precedence over your own birth family. It takes precedence over everything. Race. None of that stuff matters anymore. We're in Christ. We belong to him. Second, Peter says we're a royal priesthood. And for this, you have to go to Exodus 19. So hold on there. 
and look at Exodus 19. It says this of Israel and then of us. Exodus 19, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Verse 6, God speaking to Israel, he says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, what's interesting is that Peter doesn't translate or pick this up from the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it says a kingdom of priests in the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, which most people aren't familiar with the Septuagint, Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that happened a little over 100 years before Jesus was even born. In the Septuagint, it says a royal priesthood. Peter takes his quotation from the Septuagint, which is normal for the guys back then to do. The apostles often quote from the Septuagint. And he picks up this idea of a royal priesthood, not a kingdom of priests. And he wants to say something about priests in specific or this kind of priests. Because see, in the Old Testament, the privileges of priests and kings are separate. So to say a royal priesthood is almost a strange statement because priests from the family of Levi have one set of privileges and kings or royalty from the family of anybody know Judah have another set of privileges, right? They have two separate sets of privileges. So to bring these two together and say royal priesthood is somewhat of a strange statement. But they come together in who? In Christ, who is both the king and the priest, isn't he? And Peter understands this. He wants to make clear that he's talking about different privileges of a priest. So look back at 1 Peter. 1 Peter, if you look at chapter 2, verse 5 He also uses this statement of priesthood to the church. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What does a holy priesthood do? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then down in verse 9, he says, you're a royal priesthood. And then he gives the purpose statement at the end of that verse, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, the distinction that's being made between a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood is this. A holy priesthood makes us capable as believers to come before God without the need of a priest, a man to intercede for us because Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And because we're in Christ, we can now go to him. We don't need a priest to confess our sins. We don't need a priest to help us spiritually. We can approach God on our own in Christ. That's what he means here, that we can approach God, holy priesthood. When he says royal priesthood, though, in verse 9, what he's talking about is not that we approach God, that's already true of us, but that we take God to men. You hear the difference there in the privilege? We can approach God, that's a huge privilege. But you know what else priests do? They take God to men, don't they? And that's what he's saying here. We're to be a servant. Israel was to be a servant. They failed. And then in this same section of Isaiah that we're in, in Isaiah 43, etc., in those chapters, Jesus becomes the servant that Israel failed to be. And as the church, as the body of Christ, we're now the servant in Christ. We're a royal priesthood royal priesthood think about what it would look like if you saw yourselves as priests among the people in our city i don't think most people see themselves that way you saw yourselves as the people of god whom are to take god to the people in our city who don't know him not that your priests who people come to to confess their sins so they can finally get in good with God. But people who see yourselves in the place of having to declare him to your neighbors and your co-workers and your family members. Do you know what happens when you start to have that approach to the people you live around? 
they start to notice it. Do you know that? When you start to live as a priest among them, they start to notice it. And they start to come with you, to you for questions. They do it as a pastor because as a pastor, I've got to do it, right? It's what you guys pay me to do. Hopefully I would do it whether I was paid to do it or not. Hopefully I wouldn't do it just because my title at a church happens to be pastor. But I would do it because I'm in Christ. And being in Christ, I am a part of his royal priesthood. We have a responsibility as a church to be priests to this community. To take God to them. And it looks different than taking our legalism to them. Or taking our judgmental attitudes to them. Or taking our air of superiority to them. It looks humble. It's a people who admit that they're no better than any of the people caught in sin. They're just saved by God in Christ. And that's not any of their own doing. That's of God's doing. And they're just thankful. And they want to take him to them. You know what starts to happen? People start to see you differently and they start to treat you differently. In a good way. Now, here's what I don't mean by being a priest in your community. I don't mean slap a big Jesus symbol on the back of your car, right? And a big bumper sticker that says, you know, I believe in the Big Bang. God spoke and bang, it happened, okay? Or, or now here's the, the new one with the Jesus eating Darwin or whatever it is. That's not what it means to be a priest in your community, It doesn't mean that you hang up big stuff in your office or cubicle and you say to the people around you, unless you're going to talk right around me, don't be around me. Watch your language when you're around me. I don't tolerate that kind of thing. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean any of that. To be a priest means that you walk humbly among the people around you. That you recognize that you're just as broken and as needy of God's grace as they are. And that you feel a compassion for them because they're still stuck in the blindness that God has saved you from. And you live among them with the compassion and the concern that speaks to them. And you know what they do? They start coming to you. When their family situation, their marriage starts falling apart, they start coming to you. When there's a problem with their children, they come to you and ask you to pray for them. These unbelievers. When they have an ethical question they don't know how to overcome at work or in their life, they come and ask you, how do you think I should handle this? You get an incredible privilege in that circumstance. When their child dies, they seek you out for help. It happens, doesn't it? Those of you who are living that way, you see it happening, don't you? That's how the church is supposed to be all the time. That's what we are. Do you hear that? The sad part is that we so often fail to be what we are. You won't any longer be seen as just some guy. You'll be seen as, or some gal. You'll be seen as a man or woman of God. Third, Peter says we're a holy nation. That comes out of Exodus 19.6 also. We don't have to turn there. I already read it. Holy nation. We're a nation within a nation, a city within a city, a people within a people, a community within a community. That's what he's saying. We're a holy nation. What do nations have? To be a nation is to be a group of people that are set apart by common laws, traditions, cultures, languages, etc. Right? Is that right? That's what a nation is. If mutual interests. Israel was set apart as a nation unto God. And Israel as a nation set apart unto God had a language. What was it? Hebrew. And they had customs and they had a law. We read it all in the Old Testament. That's what they were about. Right? They had culture. What, he, what Peter says 
when he applies to the church is that we as the church are a nation living among nations all over the world. We are one nation all over the world living among multiple different nations. And that we have a common law that rules us. It's right there. There it is. That's what rules us. And it's we have this in common. And that we're not set apart based on borders or languages, ethnicities or any other thing like that. That's why I can go to India and I've gone to India or Africa and I can go to those places and I can meet believers, believers in Christ. I don't know their language. I don't know their culture. I don't know anything about their traditions. I know nothing about them. I don't even, we're just complete strangers. And I get there and they love Jesus and I love Jesus. And they invite me in to live in their home for a couple of weeks. And they feed me, we hang out and we have an instant bond. It doesn't even take any effort. It's there. Because we're both in Christ. And the nation that we're a part of, the church, supersedes those language barriers, those ethnic barriers, those culture barriers, those border barriers. And we're set apart to be something different. What he's saying here is a holy nation. What does that mean? It means morally we just look different than the rest of the world. We don't look legalistic, but we look different. We are set apart to be holy. We don't live the same way. Um, Paul gives an explanation of what this looks like. He talks about a nation that's always in sin, and he refers to them as the Gentiles. Right? And they're used as a nation that doesn't love God, and the Jews are used as a nation that does love God, often the way that Paul talks. And he speaks to the Gentiles, and he says this in Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you, speaking of the church, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. No longer walk like that nation in the futility of their minds. Listen to what it says. This is what we're not supposed to do and what we are supposed to do. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So he may have nothing to share or he, excuse me, he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you hear the difference in this ethic? Interestingly, the thief here isn't just someone who steals, but the thief here is someone who soaks off other people and doesn't work and make money with their own hand doesn't actually work the thief is someone who work or the person who's in christ is supposed to be working having enough extra to care for other people in need i'm and we're, we're talking about he's talking about males here so i'm not guilting you who are staying home with your children you're working harder than most of your husbands frankly <laughs> you're working It's completely different. You don't lie to each other. You tell each other the truth. You don't let the sun go down in your anger. You don't build up bitterness and give the devil a foothold in your life. You don't do any of that. The community looks different. It goes on, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as God's beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Can you imagine being a part of a community where we actually say, um, we don't care about ethnic distinctions. We don't care about language distinctions. We don't care about social class distinctions. We don't care about border distinctions. We don't care about political party distinctions. We don't care about any age distinctions. We don't care about any of it. We love one another because we're in Christ. We love Christ, and so we love one another. And we want to look different than the rest of the world. So we're going to live among them humbly and in a fashion that's holy, and we're going to put away lying and speak the truth. And we're going to put away theft and laziness, and we're going to work hard. And we're going to help other people. And we're going to put away corrupting talk, and we're going to use words that build people up. And we're going to put away a lack of forgiveness and we're going to start forgiving people. We're going to put away anger and hatred and we're going to start loving people. We're not going to tell the same crude jokes that everybody else tells. We're not going to be filthy in that way as everyone else is. We're not going to be sexually immoral, but we're going to be faithful to our spouses. Do you know what that community would do in this world? See, people know the church is supposed to be this way. They know. But they see a church that isn't this way. And they say, what? You're just a bunch of hypocrites. You're no different than us. You go to a church on Sunday and proclaim Jesus and live your same individualistic, sinful, self-concerned lives. You guys fight over everything. You divide over anything. You don't have a commitment to each other that looks different than the world's. And because that happens, the church loses its witness. And do you know where I see it happen more than anywhere else? In rich places. Do you hear what I just said? In wealthy places. Do you know, I don't see that happening as much in India among my brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering for the gospel. They have a commitment to one another because they can't afford not to. But we can. We can afford to, I mean, technologically set ourselves up so we're insulated from anybody we don't like at all or any message we don't like. And we have to have no commitment to each other. And we carry it right into the church. And it's wrong. And it's what destroys our witness. Fourth thing he says, a people for his own possession we're a people for his own possession this phrase means that we belong to god not to ourselves we've been bought with a price we're his our bodies are not our own we're the blood-bought bride of jesus christ and as such our entire meaning in life is caught up with being a possession of his Hear that? You are God's delight and treasure. And he is yours. And when you understand that, you don't have to hold on to your treasures in this life anymore. You don't have to hold on to your goals in this life anymore. You know what you get to hold on to? God's goals. And God. Because everything is yours in Christ and you know it. You understand that the gospel gives you all the riches of Christ in him. And you don't have to hold on to the junk in this life anymore. And so you can do whatever God calls you to do. Give up your dreams. Give up your desires. You can give up your stuff. And you can proclaim him to all peoples. And you can help the poor. And you can do all this because all that matters is the fact that you are his and he is yours. And you have something so much more glorious and so much greater than all the junk we have in our houses. 
and all the dreams we have for our lives, none of them even come close to what it means to have Christ. Not even close. For his treasured possession, what more could we want than that? Sovereign Grace, we could be known as a community that is so different from the world around us. We could be known as a community that has these characteristics. Really, these four things are summed up this way. A community that shows sacrificial love for one another. Chosen people. A community that shows the love and grace of God to those around us. A royal priesthood. A community that rejoices, or excuse me, a community that is separate because of its holiness and not because of race or social class or political party or family heritage. A holy nation. A community that so rejoices in being God's treasured possession that it joyfully gives up its own ambitions to declare the praises of God to the ends of the earth. A people for his own possession. If we become that kind of community, if we would be who we are, then we would be driven to accomplish the purpose or mission that God has. We would be. And what is it? Look at the rest of verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a purpose statement. Do you know why God made you all these things? Why God called us out and made us this? So that. So that what? Here's this God's purpose. So we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why he did it. That's God's purpose. He called Israel for the same reason. In Isaiah 43, 21, he goes on. He says, these are people for my own possession that they may proclaim my name. Or my excellence. Or my glory. He's called us. We didn't save ourselves in our own great efforts. He saved us. And there's a deep humility that comes with that. When you get a hold of that. It humbles you. And there's a corresponding desire that comes with it. To proclaim his name to the nations. And the Greek verb, verb used there for proclaim is the idea of making him widely known. In other words, making him famous. There's no what a widely known person is, right? Oprah is widely known. Right? She can do a political thing and, what was it, 40,000? They had to rent a stadium. 40,000 people came or something like that. Because Oprah showed up. She's widely known. Right? Christ is to be widely known. And he's made widely known by his people. That's why he saved us, to make himself widely known. In other words, we're to make God's excellencies, which is speaking of his glory and power and holiness and love and grace, known. And Peter's point isn't that we declare our own experience. You know, I had a good experience with Jesus and I was really warm and fuzzy. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something that's God-centered. He's talking about making God known, not your experience known. Making him known. It's about him. It's about God as preeminent or supreme. He's the only true God who saves. No other God does this, for there is no other God. He is the one true God. He is the only Savior and Lord. He's the one who brought brought us out of darkness. He pulled us out of our blindness and sin. You guys remember the blindness and sin? Maybe you were too young and you don't remember. But some of you were adults when you were saved. And you remember the blindness and sin that you were in. You remember your spiritual deafness, your state of ignorance and idolatry. I remember it. I would hear something. I didn't get it. And then one day God worked in my life and converted me and I got it. The light went off. 
I saw and I heard. I, I, you know, when Peter's using this idea of out of darkness, he's talking about pagans in Rome who were idolaters. They worshiped statues. And they were afraid that these statues, these statues corresponded to gods. And they assumed that if we don't worship this God, come to the statue and pay homage, then he'll do something to us. He'll give us rains when we don't want them. He'll kill our crops. He won't take care of our family. Whatever it is, he'll do something we don't, those gods will do something we don't want them to do. So we come and worship this idol to, to manipulate the gods to do what we want. That's what pagans did. Now, we all know that we're not in that kind of darkness. I don't know any of you who are worshiping little statues in your house. Maybe some of you are. You probably aren't telling your friends about it though, right? <laughs> you just are caught in idolatry in a completely different way. The same way I've been caught in idolatry. And it looks totally different. What we worship is our stuff, our popularity, the praise of men. We worship those things. We worship the gifts God gives us rather than the giver of those gifts. Rather than seeing all the gifts that are around, rather than me seeing my son and my daughter as gifts of God that point me to how glorious and gracious he is to give them to me in the first place, I begin to worship them. Or my wife. Or my job. Or my house. Or my health. I begin to worship all these things. And you know how I do that? I know I do that. Because if God took my child or my house or my job or my wife, my health, I'd be angry with God. Is that not how we get? You don't have the right to do this. I'm angry with you. It's so great a picture of where our Worship really resides. My natural desire is to live for my own glory. And so I'll do whatever I think benefits me. If I think lying to you benefits me, I will. Isn't that how we are? If I think fighting with you benefits me, I'll do that. If I think not forgiving someone benefits me, I'll tend to do that. If I think cheating on my spouse benefits me, I will. Now, understand, I'm talking about the general population, not me. I would never cheat on my spouse, but (laughs) not the rest of you. No, (laughs) you understand we're all sinners. We will do these things if we think they benefit us. If I think theft benefits me, I'll steal. If I think violating the law benefits me, which I often do, which is why I speed, I do it. If I think gossiping about others benefits me in some way, I participate in it. If I think divorce benefits me, I'll do it. If I think excessive drug use and alcohol abuse benefit me, I'll participate in those things. If I think ignoring God outright benefits me, I'll do that. If I think cursing excessively benefits me, I will. I say excessively because occasionally that's cool. No. (laughs) If I think pretending to be someone that I'm not benefits me, I'll do that. If I think being myself, no matter how that affects others, because that's just my personality, benefits me, I'll do that. If I think killing someone benefits me, I will. And if you think that's not true of our culture, then look at abortion and look at slavery. We have a history in this country. We went right from slavery, essentially, to abortion of killing and enslaving people if it benefits us. You know, I could go on, you guys. My point is that idolatry ultimately among us is worship of ourselves. And people are trapped in this darkness. And you see them all around you. And you see their lives being destroyed by this blindness, don't you? As yours was. 
These people are rich, they're poor, they're black, they're white, they're Hispanic, they're Asian, they're American, they're foreign, they're men, they're women, they're children, they're Democrats, they're Republicans, they're green, they're people with their children in public school, private school, home school. They're people who go to church regularly and people who never go to church at all. It doesn't matter what category you go to, people are in that category who are in blindness to their sin and struggling and reaping the destructive outcome of it. They're not any different from you and from me. Not any different. There's nothing in us that saved us. It was something in God, his love and grace that saved us. And so he, that's why we declare the excellences or proclaim the excellencies of he who called us out of darkness, of him, excuse me, who called us out of darkness, out of that spiritual blindness and into his marvelous light. He called us to experience and partake in his glorious, holy presence. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says in their case, Speaking of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We were blinded in darkness. We were caught up with our worship of our own lives when God opened our eyes and let us see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. That's what happened. We have the privilege of being those who are saved, who have been shown the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, but who equally deserve the wrath and the consequences of our sin that the rest of the world around us is experiencing. But we don't because of the sacrificial life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't. And that's the only reason we don't. He's called us out of sin and darkness and into his holiness and light. In other words, we've been given sovereign grace. But it wasn't so we could continue to live for ourselves and just get salvation at the end of it all. It was so we could live to proclaim him. It wasn't so we could look down on others and go, you poor blind fool. So glad I'm not like you. It was so we'd recognize it has nothing to do with us. Everything to do with God. And so we'd be humbled and have compassion on those still in darkness and we proclaim to them the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why we exist as a church. It's what God's called us to. We just have to be who we are and proclaim him. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you were gracious enough to save us. We know, Lord, it had nothing to do with us. It was all about you. Your incredible graciousness and love. And Lord, we know it wasn't ultimately for us, but it was for you. For your praise, your name to be declared among the nations. We pray, Lord, that we would be a church that behaves as those whom you've called us to be. That we would behave as those who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for our God. That we would behave in line with that, Lord. And that as a result, your excellencies would be proclaimed. The God of our salvation, 
would be known. Lord, that the one you who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light would be widely known and praised. In Jesus' name, amen.